Today's sermon comes from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear your joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a clean spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered up to your altar. Good morning. Uh, my name is Micah Meisberg. I'm the director of ministries here at Christ Church East. It's my, uh, my joy, my privilege to preach the word to you this morning uh, as Pastor Keith is out of town. I'm going to be preaching from Psalm 51. I invite you to, to open that up in your Bibles if you have that. Otherwise, you should find a sermon guide in your worship folder. Today, we begin our, our summer um, sermon series on the Psalms. Um, This is one of my favorite uh, times of the year, uh, looking at the Psalms uh, over the summer. And we're going to begin with a basic premise for the Psalms, of looking at the Psalms, and that's the Psalms teach us to pray. Not only are the Psalms the words of God to man, they are, but they're unique in the Bible because they are the words of man to God that have become the words of God to humanity. And not only that, um, as you may know, uh, one of the premier psalmists uh, in the Bible is a man by the name of King David. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, He wrote about 70 of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. And the Psalm we're going to be looking at today, Psalm 51, was written during a a very particular time in David's life. Um, In Isaiah 55, God says, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples. So why is that important? What does that mean? So not only are the Psalms teaching us to pray because they are the words of people that have become the words of God to man, but the life of David is the most narrated story in the Bible besides the life of Jesus. 
right below, right below Jesus in the Gospels is the life of David. And God tells us why. It's not just that Jesus, uh, excuse me, it's not just that David uh, is an example for us. That would be great, but David uh, shows us what God is like. We see in the life of David, David's God. And God said, the same steadfast, sure love that I showed to David, I will show to you. So think with me for a moment. Um, How did you respond to the last time you sinned? The last time you encountered an area of personal or moral failure? Unless, of course, you're perfect, and I'd very much like to talk to you after the service, learn a thing or two from you. But otherwise, if, if we're all being honest here, think back to the last time you sinned, whether it was, it was big or small. How did you respond? How did you pray? That's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, employees, perhaps think about the last time you complained or mistreated a coworker. Parents, moms and dads, perhaps think about the last time you disciplined in anger. Husbands and wives, uh, perhaps think about the last time you were harsh or disrespectful or unkind to one another. Perhaps you've fallen into, into sexual sin or pornography. How did you react? How did you come to God? How did you relate to God? What was the first thing you said to God? Let me share with you what David did. We see in the, in the superscript, that's the heading above, it tells us um, the, the situation that David wrote this. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. This is in verse one. When Nathan the prophet went to him to confront him after he had an affair with Bathsheba. So if you know anything about the life of David, you will know that at one point in David's life, he was very, very close to God. As a teenager, he was called the sweet psalmist of Israel. And uh, his heart is is really captured in, in Psalm 27, verse four. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That was David's life vision, his big goal. I just want to worship God all the time. Do you ever feel that way in worship? That was was David's heart as a youth. He was a a worshiping warrior. You might remember he slayed Goliath with five uh, smooth stones, uh, played the harp. Uh, He was a shepherd boy, and he was anointed by, by Samuel, the prophet Samuel, instead of King Saul. And he was chosen because God said, I found a man after my own heart. He was a man after God's own heart. You also might remember that he was on the run from King Saul, who was trying to catch him, trying to kill him, uh, because he was jealous of of, of David before he was king. For 20 years, he was hiding in caves, running around, if you read 1 Samuel there's a lot, of, a lot of times he's running all over the place. And finally, after all these years, after a couple decades, he becomes king of Israel in God's timing. 
right? And within the first 10 years of, of David being king, something happened to David. Something happened to David's relationship to God. There was a secret atrophy going on in his heart where he began to trust less and less and rely less and less on the Lord and trust more and more and more on himself. His passion began to wane. His heart began to drift away from God. Until, you know, as, as we know the end of the story here, 10, 10 years into becoming king of Israel, he had an adulterous affair with uh, Bathsheba and then killed, I mean, this is juicy. This is like a soap opera in the Bible. You ever feel that way? David had her husband, Uriah, killed in war secretly, thinking no one would notice. And, and if, that, if there's any indication of how much David's heart had drifted away from God, his faith in God, it was that, that he thought that he could, he could hide it from God. Really, David? Did you think that you could get away with that? What happened, David? So when Nathan the prophet comes and, and confronts David about this, as a prophet of the Lord, speaking on behalf of the Lord, he says something very interesting. Nathan says on behalf of the Lord, you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Did you catch that? God said, you have despised me. What does that say? God was not, not just talking about the sin, but the sin beneath the sin, right? It was that David had drifted away from God and be, begun to, to live independently from God as if God didn't exist. It's a, it's a kind of functional atheism that sometimes even we can slip into where we, we aren't conscious of God, we're forgetful of God. The reason why that's important to understand with Psalm 51 is that Psalm 51 is not just about a particular sin, it's about returning to that relationship. It's about returning to intimacy with God. So I, I asked, uh, what's the first thing you do when you sin? David's first thing that he did was he ran to God's grace, love, and mercy. If you look at the first line of verse one in Psalm 51, have mercy on me uh, may also be translated, be gracious to me. David ran first to the grace of God. It's the definition. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, the good that you don't deserve, undeserved favor. Mercy is not getting the punishment you do deserve. David said, be gracious to me, O God, two ways, according to your steadfast love. Uh, in the Hebrew, that's your chesed, your, your covenantal love, your steadfast love, or in another way to put it, your unconditional love. Secondly, according to your abundant mercy, 
blot out my transgressions. I want to talk for a moment to uh, the Reformed Christians in the room, which is a lot of us. Uh, we believe in our, that our election for salvation is unconditional, right? We, we love the, the doctrines of grace. Our salvation is secure. But do we believe that God's love for us is unconditional? Do we think he may let us into heaven, but he might have a frown on his face? Begrudgingly. A promise is a promise. In our hearts and our minds, are we tempted to think that God is disappointed with us constantly? But the truth is that God's love, as we're seeing here, is unconditional, and that's what David knew. David knew that Nathan coming to him was a sign of God's love for him. God was pursuing David. David says in, in Psalm 103, describing God's steadfast love, that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him, towards his children. We know what David didn't know, that that's even more than we could possibly imagine. If you can find the edges of the universe, then maybe, just maybe, you might be able to figure out how great God's mercy is for you. It is infinite. It is from everlasting to everlasting, Psalm 103 says. It knows no bounds. So uh, I'll ask you another question. What is the expression on God's face when you repent of your sin? Is he angry? Is he sad? Is he disappointed? What if instead you saw God with compassion on his face? What if instead you saw him, as Jesus says in Luke 15, with arms wide open, running to receive you? Joyed, overjoyed that you have returned to him. You know, when I, when I first came to Christ, that was easier to believe, right? It was easier to receive, I'm the prodigal son, I'm coming home, this is awesome, right? I received the gospel, I received Jesus. But once you've been a Christian, one year turns to five years, turns to 10 years, doesn't it become a little bit harder to believe in your, your heart of hearts that God still feels that way? That that's the God who receives you when you repent. But that's the truth. The truth is that God's mercy doesn't grow tired or weary. He forgives us 70 times seven, times seven, times a trillion. He receives us, period. I will belabor this point because I need to hear it myself. We need to speak to us our, this to ourselves again and again and again. You are my son. You are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. The truth is that that will never change if we belong to Christ. That is unconditional. 
It's a complete game changer when you realize that because when you stumble in sin, you realize you're not a hopeless hypocrite. You're not a disappointment to God when you sin. You may be a mess, but you're God's mess. Parents, you know this with your children sometimes, right? They may, they may get into, into trouble, but they're yours. You don't stop loving them. You may be immature, but you're God's child. And he will never give up on you. He will never stop loving you. So uh, secondly, Psalm 51 allows us to come clean with God. Uh, we see this through David's confession of his sin. And when I was uh, 10 years old, I believe I was in the fifth grade, um, I was homeschooled and I was able to go with my dad on, on uh, business trips around the state of Florida. And um, I thought I was all special because I was getting to travel as a 10-year-old and spend time with my dad. So, but the, the rules were the rules. And I had to um, be very um, diligent with my homework and I had to stay in the hotel room, all right? It's, um, especially when my dad went downstairs to hold his, his business meetings. So, um, I all of a sudden got so thirsty. My dad, my dad had gone downstairs and it was just me. And I decided, I wanna get a soda. So in direct disobedience to my dad, I left the hotel room without a key, did the little latch on the door to make sure I could get back in, went and got a soda from the soda machine, got back in and felt so cool. Felt like I had gotten away with it. And I drink half my soda. I'm probably being really disobedient and watching The Price is Right, you know. 11 o'clock a.m., you know, TV shows, feeling so cool. And I turn around and I spill the Coke everywhere. All over the nightstand, all over the alarm clock. And I am freaking out. I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I'm gonna get caught. So I clean it all up and my dad gets home. And this is before the, the, the age of, cell, uh, of, um, of iPhones. So we actually relied on that alarm clock <laughs> um, to wake up in the morning. So my dad is looking at the alarm clock and saying, son, do you know why this alarm clock is broken? I don't know. <laughs> right? So for the next year and a half, that alarm clock haunted me. Every time I was in kids' church and they talked about lying, every time they talked about, like we're talking about confessing your sin, oh my gosh, I have to tell my dad. I have to tell my dad. So out of the blue, when I'm 11 and a half, I finally break down. I'm like, I'm, okay, I just have to get, I, I just have to tell him. So I go into his room and I say, dad, do you remember that, that alarm clock that was broken? in that hotel room? He went, no. Well, I left the room when I wasn't supposed to and I got the Coke and I spilled it and I broke the clock and it's all my fault and I'm sorry. He said, okay, I forgive you. That's great. So, so I was like, oh. And I felt so much better, so much better after just confessing my sin. 
There's such freedom and relief in, in honest confession, isn't there? Um, the Apostle John called this walking in the light. Verse six, uh, David says that God delights in truth in our, our inward being. And this, this gets back to what we were saying of, of that personal relationship with God, is that yes, David had sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, David had sinned against Uriah. Yes, David had sinned against Israel as the king. He had sinned against really the whole world because uh, he defamed the God of Israel. Um, Yes, David would experience consequences for his actions. But before anything else, the most important thing for David to do was to make right his relationship with God, with his father. We read this um, verse one to four again. Just pay attention to to the personal, how personal this is. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Again and again, it's you and me, you and me, you and me. That's the very first place to start. Knowing that God loves you when you sin, it's that you and me, you and me, you and me. Before, before we talk about anything else, David says, I was wrong, God was right. I give up. God delights when we agree with truth. It's a good skill to learn, and it takes a lot of humility and integrity to own what you've done, to take personal responsibility. Uh, it's a good skill uh, in repentance before God and also um, with each other. Maybe you've experienced the opposite, where um, someone apologizes to you and you go, was that an apology? I'm not quite sure. Um, the worst way to apologize to someone is to say, I'm sorry if... I hurt your feelings, right? Where does that place the blame? What if instead we said um, to our spouse or children or coworkers, I'm sorry because I sinned against you by doing X, Y, and Z? That's a lot harder to say. Or do we repent like King Saul did and he said, I'm sorry, Samuel, that I disobeyed God, but you were late. So it's not really my fault. Saul made excuses, and that's what, that's what made David so different, is that when Saul was confronted, he tried to cover it up. He tried to actually to... Um, offer sacrifices, like David mentions at the end of this psalm. But David didn't hide it. He actually wrote a song about it and sent it to the choir master to teach to all of Israel. Think about it. That's like you sinning, writing a song about your repentance, sending it to Parker, 
or in this case to Jordan, and you know, blind copying the whole world, right? To lead everyone in worship about the way you just repented. David confessed his sin. That's the point. Thirdly, um, in terms of how Psalm 51 teaches us to pray, teaches us to run to the cross. This is so amazing. Um, Let me ask you another question from the Lord's Prayer. Why does Jesus teach us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive others, those who sin against us? Haven't we been justified once and for all before God when we first placed our trust in Christ? Yes, we have. Jesus said that... um, Actually, it says of Jesus in Hebrews 10 that he's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And that is the gospel truth, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, not by works, lest any man should boast. So that's a once and done, right? We put our faith and trust in Christ, and he has finished it. We who were were unclean were made clean. We who were sinners were made righteous as a gift. Right? So why do, we, why do we still pray for forgiveness? It's not to accomplish our forgiveness, but to receive it. We have what David looked forward to. So we learn from David and Jesus that sin is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to run to the cross, to remember what, what God has done for us in Jesus. Where do we see this in Psalm 51? If you look in in verse two, it says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me from my sin is literally pronounce me ceremonially clean from my sin. Verse seven, David, David prays, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was, was used in ceremonially, uh, ceremonial cleansing. It's the, the same language of, of verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Ceremonial cleansing was part of the Old Testament way of coming near to God. It was the way that you could come into the presence of God in God's tabernacle. And that is what Jesus has given to us as a gift isn't it? He's pronounced us clean. So when we come to God and confess our sins, what we are met with is the pronouncement that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is what God proclaims over us. And that's why God invites us to pray in the midst of our sin, to pray for forgiveness, because he offers it freely. He delights in mercy. The pop singer Taylor Swift has a song called Bad Blood, and it's always a little confusing to me because there's a line in the song that says, uh, you forgive and forget, but you never let it go. And that's always confusing to me because the word forgive in the Bible literally means to let loose or to let go. It's the same word. So I always think to myself, 
so you let it go, meaning you forgive, but you never let it go. In other words, uh, which it makes sense with the rest of the song, right? It's like, you don't actually forgive this person. But it's not like that with God, right? When I was thinking and praying about this and preparing for this, this, this is part, partly what hit me so hard. And I was trying to tell Lisa about it and I just was so excited about it that I, I, couldn't, I couldn't even convey uh, what I was feeling of how this was impacting me. But I just want to, want to share it with you, you as well. Is that when God relates to you, he relates to you just as if you had never sinned. He keeps no record of wrongs. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And that's not just a legal standing. It moves us from the courtroom to the family room. It moves us into the presence of God as our father. And we can relate to God as our father, as his sons and daughters, just as if we had never sinned. God presses delete. Delete. And that is the invitation when we pray for forgiveness. God invites us to press delete as well. It's the invitation to a fresh start. That's the good news of the gospel. Anything less is to make light of what Jesus has done for us. He wants us to believe it. He wants us to receive it. Now, uh, David doesn't stop there, right? So we've been talking about you and me, you and me, you and me. Uh, Psalm 51 also teaches us how to pray uh, for our relationship and community. Three different ways uh, for wisdom and grace to change to sing of God's righteousness, and to commit to help others. But the order is really, really, really key here. David is not praying these things in order to um, have a bargaining chip with God. He's not saying, I promise I'll do better next time, therefore please forgive me. I promise I'll do X, Y, and Z for you, therefore please forgive me. No, as a response to being forgiven, to returning to the joy of his salvation, to the joy of God's salvation. He prays for wisdom and grace to change. There's a few more things I I, I really want us to see in this passage. Um, In verse 12, if you you take a look, um, at the end of it, David prays, God, uphold me with a willing spirit. It doesn't seem like that, but that, that is so important. It is so important that God is the one who is upholding David to change, right? It's not David, try harder. It's God, I need you. God, I cannot change without you. The difference here is actually between conviction of sin and condemnation. 
right? We heard that the gospel in Romans 8 says that there is now no more condemnation for sin. What's the difference between that and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would bring in John 16? I would submit to you that the difference between that is one is based on our identity in Christ, that is conviction. Condemnation tears down our identity in Christ, what is given to us a gift. Conviction calls us to be who we are, right? It restores us back to relationship with God based on what Christ has given to us as a free gift, where condemnation accuses us. It tells us that our sin is evidence that we're not God's child, but that's the lie. And that can result in in despondency and giving up, or it can go the opposite way and make you try even harder if you're like me. That was my story. Uh, I say, God saved me from legalism because when I um, was raised a Christian, became a Christian, my, my sin manifested itself by trying to, to earn God's righteousness through my own effort. And um, at the end of the day, ironically, that actually produces less godliness. By the more you try to get past that feeling of shame and guilt. But conviction is different than that. It, it leads you to an abandonment on God's power to change you in Christ. David doesn't stop there. Um, and he turns outward. Um, he wants to change. He wants wisdom. He wants God to restore him, to uphold him, to make him willing. Um, but then he, he says, I will sing. I will sing of your great mercy. And the last two, uh, last two points are all based on gratitude. That, but it doesn't work without gratitude, right? Because we are so floored, we're so amazed at the mercy of our great God. That's what causes us to to want to sing and thank and praise God. That's what what, uh, makes us not be able to keep silent about it, to have to sing, to have to declare. It's another psalm that says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That's the call. So when when we sin, when we receive God's mercy, we proclaim our thanks and our praise to God publicly. And then we commit to help others out of gratitude. Why? Because at the foot of the cross is level ground. Yes, um, for murderers like David, or like Paul, the the negative consequences of their actions might be greater than our personal sins, than what we've experienced. But on another level, sin is sin before God. What the murderer needs, the adulterer, the rapist, the, the thief needs, what people in maximum security prison need is the same thing I need 
It's the same thing we need, you need, is God's radical grace in Christ, that radical hope for transformation, for hope, for forgiveness. And that's what I hope is our, our, our prayer as we, as we walk away from this, is knowing that we have been forgiven, knowing that we have received such great mercy that we would turn around and show that same mercy to others, forgive others who have wronged us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning We cannot even begin to comprehend how great your love is for us. That you love us so much, God, that you would send your son for us. You love us so much. You love us unconditionally. You are so committed to us. You are pursuing each and every heart in this room. And you are never giving up on us, God. You are never giving up on us. We are your daughters and your sons. We put our trust in Christ today and rejoice. We boast in God, we boast in the gospel. Romans says, God, today we we glory in you, that you are our righteousness. We boast in you alone, God. I pray as as, um, we go from here, Lord, in the hour of our weakness, in the hour of our sin, in the hour of temptation, I pray that you would give us confidence in your love for us that you would wash us of our shame and remind us who we are. We could be trophies of your mercy, trophies of your grace. In Jesus' name.